Welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat, my very personalized podcast and blog, which can be found at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. My goal with this podcast is to share my theater-going experiences with you, give you a sense of whether you might like to try a play or musical, but without giving away so many plot points as they do in major critical pieces in newspapers and magazines and online, which can sometimes summarize the entire play or musical and leave all the surprise plot points on the table. Enough information to make a decision whether a play or musical or a show is worth your time or money. In today's episode, which is part two of the 2017 calendar year recap, I'll talk about my Broadway favorites, plays, musicals, and the not-so-favorites. Plus, after that, a few of my favorite reviews that I wrote in 2017 as well to give you a sense of what I like, how I write, and a few of those reviews that tickled my funny bone when I reread them. As in part one, shows that I saw before May of 2017 when I started actually recording my thoughts online will just be a small commentary. For the rest, I'll share the whole review. First, we'll talk about the plays on Broadway in 2017, and by that year, I mean my calendar year of going to theater, not necessarily aligned with opening dates or Tony Award calendars. It's interesting, it's such a strong play year that um, Oslo, which won the Tony Award for Best Play, isn't even in my top five, although it was a very, very, very good play. But the winner I have in my top five and the number one play of the year was Indecent by Paula Bogle. Indecent is the true story of a Yiddish play, God of Vengeance, which was written in 1907. Following the play's successes in Europe, it is translated into English, opens on Broadway in 1923, where the entire cast is arrested for indecency. At the core, a lesbian relationship. Dreamlike staging and imagery only add to the thought-provoking frankness of the character's Jewish heritage at that particular moment when both immigration restrictions and anti-Semitism prevailed. I loved how the story proceeded along with pieces of the original play interspersed with the history of the actors and musical interludes which firmly established a mood and a people. The payoff by the end is both glorious and riveting. The cast was uniformly excellent, especially Katrina Link and Adina Verson as ladies at the center of the controversy. Go see this. It speaks to the importance of theater and history in helping us shape the direction of the world we want to live in. And in the category of runner-up, we have two plays from early in the year, Sweat, which was the Pulitzer Prize-winning play by Lynn Nottage. It focused on the collapse of industry jobs in Reading, Pennsylvania, and its effects on the citizens of the town. The second runner-up from early in the year was Jitney. It's one of the ten American Century cycle plays by August Wilson, and a beauty of a story, which takes place in an early 1970s unlicensed cab dispatch office. I'm not finished seeing all 10 of these plays and look forward to finishing the entire list. They are all generally outstanding plays. Next, we have A Doll's House Part 2. I have never seen A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen. I am vaguely aware of the general story and its famously shocking ending when first produced in 1879. Therefore, in a crowded spring season for Broadway, Part 2 was not near the top of my must-see list. Then I noticed the playwright was Lucas Nath. In 2015, 
his play The Christians at Playwrights Horizons was one of my favorites that year. Later that same season, I saw Red Speedo at the New York Theatre Workshop in a visually arresting production. I loved them both for their thought-provoking characters and storylines, so I took the plunge. Along with her co-stars Jane Hudichel, Chris Cooper, and Condola Rashad, Laurie Metcalf leads us through this quasi-sequel as Nora. While the play is definitely a part two to A Doll's Life, it arrives over a century later. The dialogue is often hilarious as the play ingeniously weaves us through a series of moral complexities. Every character is rich, three-dimensional, and fully embodied in these wonderful performances. Even more importantly, the play's plot flows effortlessly and believably. The director, Sam Gold, has effectively realized the combination of classic with contemporary. All of the actors spar against each other and themselves on a minimalistic perfect set. The audience is rewarded by revisiting a classic and its characters, but with the freshness and spin enabled by crisp, modern dialogue, plus the analytical passage of time. Is marriage a good or bad thing? A Doll's House Part 2 firmly puts the spotlight on that debate. And this playwright lets us decide if that's even possible. Leaving the theater, I overheard two older men griping about this production. They complained that the direction was all wrong, and it took the easy road by playing for laughs rather than being serious. Ibsen, this is not. It's Nath, and it's genius. Wherever he goes next, I'm all in. And my final runner-up for best play of the year is 1984. From the Wikipedia entry, 1984 is a dystopian novel published in 1949 by English author George Orwell. The novel is set in Airstrip 1, formerly known as Great Britain, a province of the superstate Oceania, in a world of perpetual war, omnipresent government surveillance, and public manipulation. Adapted and directed by Robert Ick and Duncan Macmillan, 1984 lands on Broadway after it debuted in the West End in 2013. The play has received a lot of press, noting that it's making theatergoers faint, vomit, scream at the actors from their seats, and get in fights. I saw none of that, but I will add that a young lady turned to her mom after it was over and said, Sorry, I thought this was a musical. 1984 does include rough scenes, albeit brilliantly executed and unforgettable. An inherently violent and disturbing book has been brought to three-dimensional life and the result is incredibly theatrical, uncannily in the present time, and yes, uncomfortable. Adventurous types will be rewarded by watching a knockout performance by Tom Sturridge as Winston, the cautious rebel at the center of this story. On Saturdays, 1984 is performed at 5 o'clock and 9 o'clock. Hard to imagine pulling this role off eight times a week, no less than twice in one evening. Bravo. Olivia Wilde and Reed Burney co-star in this production, both inhabiting this world and their characters with restrained intensity. I enjoyed watching the entire cast, with Wayne Duval as Parsons and Michael Potts as Charrington particularly stand out for me. The set design, use of projections, and lighting is top drawer. The publication of 1984 popularized the adjective Orwellian, which describes official deception, secret surveillance, and manipulation of recorded history by a totalitarian or authoritarian state. Winston's job, as a matter of fact, is to rewrite the historical record so that it always supports the party line, 
Written in 1948, George Orwell brought us the phrase, Big Brother is watching you. The time for this exceptional play is now. Run. Before I move on to the musicals of the year, I'd like to have one honorable mention in the play category, and that is the revival of The Glass Menagerie. A hugely controversial Sally Field-led production, which frankly had more haters than admirers. Laura was played by Madison Ferris, a visibly disabled actress, which threw the play's words into a much harsher context. The scene with Finn Wittrock as the gentleman caller was riveting, and perhaps my favorite pairing I've ever seen. I cannot explain how both were not nominated for Tony Awards. Yes, this revival deconstructed a classic, and yes, it was a bit of a mess, but we were talking about this production for months afterward. Isn't that vital theater? I think so. And now on to the musicals. My pick for Best Musical of 2017 is The Band's Visit. Based on a 2007 film of the same name, The Band's Visit was first produced by the Atlantic Theatre Company last season. Although I had already seen and loved this musical, I decided to revisit its uptown transfer to Broadway. A band from Egypt has been invited to play a concert in Israel, but manages to get lost. As a result, they wind up in Bet HaTikva instead of Pet HaTikva. What's the difference? Upon arrival, they hear the song, Welcome to Nowhere. From this point, the band and its members interact with the locals. Rather than being an overtly political musical, the band's visit is more interested in life and relationships from multiple perspectives. The young and the not-so-young. The practical and the hopelessly romantic. And, especially, those who can hear and savor the music of life. Like its not-so-distant cousin, the Tony Award-winning musical Once, music is the connective tissue to drive the plot and develop characterizations in very intimate scenes. This is a slow, quiet, funny, sad, realistic, magical musical tour of a very ordinary town awakened by visitors. They bring something new to cherish, if only for a moment. Director David Cromer sets a melancholy but beautiful mood and tempo to deliver the welcome Middle Eastern-influenced music and lyrics of David Yazbek. As the band's leader, Tony Shalhoub is near-perfect, as usual, with the right combination of dignified and human. Golden-voiced Ariel Stachel has one of the peak moments, singing the melodious song, Hallad's Song About Love, with Poppy, one of the locals played by Ty Benson. However, the band's visit belongs first and foremost to Katrina Lank as Dina, the proprietor of the cafe who first greets the band. Effortlessly sexy and seductive, bored and world-weary, yet still dreaming, Mrs. Lank's performance is equally luminous and grounded. An excerpt from the Playbill bio from George Budd, who played Kamal, a band member. Quote, I hope young Arabic kids know that there is starting to be a place for their expression, their stories, and their faces. The Arab voice, rich in history and beautiful music, is vital in American theater. Indeed it is. The band's visit is still running on Broadway in 2018 and is well worth your time. Now for some of the runners-up. A few of them were very early in the year productions. One, Natasha Pierre and the Great Common of 1812. The Ars Nova hit I first saw in its original incarnation back in 2012 finally made it to Broadway 
with Josh Groban in a sumptuous, beautifully sung version. And we had Come From Away, still running in 2018, ridiculously well-directed by Christopher Ashley, who won a Tony for his efforts, this tale of strangers whose planes were diverted to a tiny town in Newfoundland on 9-11 is a masterclass in storytelling. Twelve people playing multitudes of characters on a grim day in American history based on original interviews. Then we have the revival of Sunday in the Park with George. Jake Gyllenhaal and Annalie Ashford as Soro and Dot. Both excelled in another extraordinary revival of the Sondheim musical from 1984. In this outing, the Act Two chromolome has finally been decoded and we get to see what the big deal is all about. Following the superb Daniel Evans and Jenna Russell version from 2008, I believe Sunday is a confirmed masterpiece in which technology has finally caught up with the show. My last favorite musical of the year was Groundhog Day. Once in a while, you go to a Broadway show and leave so completely entertained that you can hardly believe your luck. If you don't already know, the basic plot premise is that Phil Connors, who was played by Andy Carl, is an irritable, obnoxious weatherman sent to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania to cover Phil, the groundhog, and his shadow prediction for spring. But something happens and he wakes up to face February 2nd again and again. I vaguely remember liking the movie on which the show was based, and I'm a big fan of Andy Carl's previous work. Haven't seen him in On the 20th Century, the title character in Rocky, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and Legally Blonde. His performance, and I'm talking about acting, singing, clowning, being an asshole, is astonishingly great here, and he is on stage nearly the whole show. I would rather not give away too many details, just go. Groundhog Day is a combination of inventive set design, a very funny book, clever lyrics by Matilda's Tim Minchin in Another Winner, and direction which tightly packs in so much hilarity throughout. Importantly, the entire cast was stellar and memorable no matter what the size of the role. If you want to attend a big Broadway show, be wildly entertained, and leave completely in awe of the talent that created and performs this finely tuned machine, then Groundhog Day is a must-see. Very, very sad that it ended its run short and didn't find an audience. And now, just outside the top five, but worthy of an honorable mention, is SpongeBob SquarePants. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? I remember the first episode which aired in 1999. Initially, it was hard to believe this simplistic and bizarre tomfoolery was going to become an enormous hit. The episode I remember most fondly was Ripped Pants. It is even harder to imagine SpongeBob SquarePants as a Broadway musical. Put down your flying carpet Aladdin with your in-your-face entertainment, there's a new watery wonderland in town. If you have ever desired to see a cartoon completely transformed into a spectacular visual treat, then this show is for you. Since SpongeBob has been assembled by earnestly embracing its tone and thematic sensibility, there could be difficulty for some people who don't know the source material. Unfamiliarity with the TV show probably hurts one's ability to see how phenomenally these characters have been rendered on stage. Ethan Slater has the title role. He is an internally optimistic, quite bendable sponge. A powerhouse who holds the whole show together, he is superb. No bulky sponge costume needed, just this actor with plaid pants, a shirt, and a tie. I repeat, he is superb, nailing every moment, or is that better described as fully absorbed? 
Danny Skinner plays his BFF Patrick, the starfish with intellectual shortcomings yet a heart of gold. His casting is also ideal. The males are stronger presences and performers in the show overall, as in the series. The show is not without a few shortcomings. The music is sort of a jukebox collection by artists as diverse as Cindy Lauper, Aerosmith, John Legend, Lady Antebellum, and they might be giants. The staging and choreography, however, are so fantastic, so inventive, so smile-inducing, it doesn't really matter which songs are the better ones. Tina Landau directed this psychedelic masterpiece, which is amazingly 100% faithful to the spirit and tone of the series. Christopher Catelli brilliantly turned the whiny Squidward, an awesome Gavin Lee, into a tap-dancing, show-stopping octopus. The costumes and set design by David Zinn are creative, colorful, and effortlessly cheeky. Pool noodles is undersea fauna. What's the best part of this aquatic dreamscape? I'd have to see it again to figure that out. There are so many choices to consider. As said before and worth repeating, the visuals are stunning. Adding to the fun is a noise-supplying soundboard as part of the orchestra. SpongeBob SquarePants is a fully realized cartoon brought magnificently to three-dimensional life. If cartoons and fun are not your cup of tea, too bad for you. For the rest of us, it's time for Bikini Bottom Day, a truly unforgettable spectacle. From the best, we move on to the worst. And in the categories of play and musical, I've selected one of each. The first is my worst play of the year on Broadway, the revival of Marvin's Room. Produced off-Broadway in 1991, and later made into a film with Meryl Streep, Diane Keaton, and Leonardo DiCaprio, Marvin's Room has been exhumed, or buried for good, by the Roundabout Theater on Broadway this summer. Here are the essentials. Marvin, unseen throughout, is dying, and his daughter Bessie has chosen to live in Florida to take care of him and his wife for the last 20 years. She now has leukemia, played by Lily Taylor and a strange sister and her kids take a trip to see if there's a bone marrow match. Who did the right thing and who did the wrong thing? All of this is framed in sort of an absurdist comedy that includes a wisecracking doctor and mostly unfunny one-liners. A small, intimate character play thrust on a large stage does not help at all. The actors are lost amidst the space. I was in orchestra row F and had to concentrate hard to hear what they were saying, despite the fact that much of the time the cast is downstage. On the way out, people were talking about not being able to hear key speeches. The set was oddly spacious, with a turntable that sometimes moved chairs and benches two or three feet during scenes for no discernible reason at all. When you notice how many times an actor's face is not lit because another person is in the way, it's hard to praise the lighting design. The only performance I enjoyed was the troubled son Hank, played by Jack DeFalco, who at least developed a full character, one who was in a mental institution for burning the family house down. Yes, really. The principals were just milling about and, in many cases, mumbling. The New York Times review of Janine Garofalo's performance called her such a brilliant underplayer that I could hardly tell the difference between Lee's awfulness and her kindness. I call bullshit. The only possible way this play could work is for everybody to be acting in capital letters. This is not subtle stuff. This is a play where a costumed animal character rescues Bessie when she faints at Disney World. Yes, really. 
The blame for this production of Marvin's Room has to lie firmly with the director, Ann Kaufman, who has done fine, if not exceptional, work in past seasons that I enjoyed. The plays Marjorie Prime, Detroit, Sundown Yellow Moon, and Belleville. An unfortunate Broadway directorial debut in a production that can only be graded as poor. And now my vote for Worst Musical of the Year. Unbelievably, it's still running on Broadway, so you can still check it out if you'd like. It's a Bronx tale. Beowulf Borat's scenery can be as large a character as anything in a show. Take the phenomenal cityscape from Act One, the play from Lost Hearts Memoir, that rotated from tenement to luxury penthouse and back again. It was an awesome framing device to an exceptional play. We are treated to big moving brownstones in a Bronx tale, but this time they get in the way. Perhaps they were going for choreography but the structure spinning, then moving upstage and back throughout the proceedings is distracting, overwhelming this rather underwhelming musical. Based on his one-man show, turned into a well-admired 1993 movie, Chaz Palmentieri wrote the book with Alan Menken. He's the guy of every Disney musical in the great little shop of horrors, and provided the music here. We are in the Bronx, alternating between the years 1960 and 1968, in an Italian neighborhood ruled by Goodfellas. Young Calagero is a child seduced by the easy money earned from the mob. The older Calagero is our narrator and lead character in the story, who is looking back on choices made while trying to find the right path for his future. In a confident Broadway debut, it starred Bobby Conte Thornton. At far too many curtain calls these days, the audience leaps to his feet like puppies begging for snossages. Tellingly, that did not happen at the end of A Bronx Tale, although the audience seemed more satisfied with the show than me. There's one outstanding song, one of the great ones it's called, and it's sung by our mob in chief, played by the always solid Nick Cordero, who was the best thing in Bullets Over Broadway, and has done great off-Broadway work, and Nice Girl, and Brooklynite. All of the other songs are unmemorable. Supporting players with little to do are given Goomba names, Frankie Coffee Cake, Jojo the Whale, but there's no character development whatsoever. The direction is credited to Broadway veteran Jerry Zaks and Robert De Niro, who also directed the movie, his first. If telling your cast to stand center stage in the spotlight and sing facing forward is direction, then wow. But the set moves a lot, so I guess somebody had to coordinate that. The absolute worst thing in a Bronx tale was the sound design. The cast was amplified like it was playing in arena. When the material is this subpar, loudness does not help. I've certainly seen worse, but this one's not good. Terrible may be too strong, but maybe not. So that's the recap of the best of Broadway plays and musicals from 2017 from my seat. What I'd like to do next is share with you a handful of reviews for some other productions I've seen. First up, we'll go to Chicago and the Steppenwolf Theatre Company and their production of Blacks. B-L-K-S is the title, but it's pronounced Blacks. Consider this improbably an entertaining question. What comedies would Neil Simon write if he were a new black lesbian playwright emerging today? Written by Aziza Barnes, Blacks is about women in their 20s going about everyday life. They are black, some straight, some gay. They go to work. They have relationships in various states of disrepair. They go to the clubs. They are dreaming and searching and dealing. 
and one of them is undergoing a, quote, pussy apocalypse. Some of this absurdity is laugh-out-loud funny. The aforementioned disaster opens the play when one of our characters discovers she has a mole on her clitoris. I do not lie. A friend who lives with her declares, when you find a mole on your clit, it's definitely a day-drinking day. The bottle appears, and situation comedy via Brooklyn ensues. Another friend soon appears to join them, as she's also having a bad day. Turns out, she discovered her boyfriend has been cheating with a woman who drinks red wine with her Popeye's fried chicken. We are in the land of big, broad comedy, used as therapy to laugh through life's misadventures. Of course, the play has its more serious moments, and they feel a bit contrived. Too much happens over the course of one night, and the messaging moments can feel heavy-handed. Suspending disbelief, which is normally what we do with situation comedies, is the way to go. The cast here is excellent. The opening scene of Act Two between our smart gal June, her new suitor from the club, Justin, and her medically traumatized roommate is the definition of farce. I have never been to Steppenwolf before, but I've seen their work and their troupe on the New York stage. Blacks was my pick while I was visiting Chicago. Funny, funny stuff from a great new voice. From Chicago, we'll go back to New York and an original musical off-Broadway from the York Theater Company entitled Desperate Measures. A bed trick borrowed from Shakespeare's Measure to Measure. A Western setting. In jail, a murderer with less than a full deck is introduced in The Ballad of Johnny Blood. It's the 1800s somewhere out west. Some ladies see themselves best suited for the convent. Others feel the draw of the saloon and the oldest profession. Add in a drunken priest losing his religion. The sheriff is handsome and a great guy, we reckon. Governor von Richter Henkin Flipter Chubler Chubler, unpronounceable by me, played by Nick Wyman, who was terrific. Well, the governor's in charge and possibly corrupt. So far, so good. A pile of fun songs nicely sung by a talented cast. A book, however, which can't quite nail the Shakespearean rhyming thing though you will hear Nietzsche rhymed with peachy. A missed opportunity for greatness, but plenty to enjoy. I'll pretend not to notice the elderly ladies who find a darkened theater the most natural place to go purse diving, slowly and thoroughly, only to crinkle their wrappers and smackingly enjoy their treats more wetly and louder than you'd suppose was even remotely decorous. Seriously, it was annoying. Back to our Western. The Let's Put on a Show Desperate Measures. This new musical is almost unbelievably old school. Circa 1945, perhaps. She's a nun-to-be. He's a kind-hearted sheriff. Unfortunately, we fall a touch short of chemistry or possibly direction here. If these roles had been played by, let's say, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, there might be musical comedy heaven created with this material. Connor Ryan is dim-witted Johnny Blood and also a gifted comedic actor and outstanding singer, notably in the song Good To Be Alive. Lauren Molina strips to It's Getting Hot In Here, and generally plays a big and surely temper-flavored Mae West brassy. These two knock the show's best number, Just For You, out of the park. At that moment, Desperate Measures, the timeless, or is it old, musical shines. Next up, the Roundabout Theatre Company's production of The Last Match. 
Upon entering the theater, the U.S. Open Stadium tennis court is in full view, a blue hardcourt playing surface, the huge lighting fixture at the top, scoreboards on both sides, and somehow both the inner stadium wall and a large open sky. Not a literal translation, but theatrical and perfectly rendered for the play which follows. I open the playbill and see that the set designer is Tim McAbee, who I just praised this past week for his outstanding work on Describe the Night. I look forward to what he does next. He's that good. The last match takes place over the course of a semifinal men's tennis game at the U.S. Open. Tim is the reigning American golden boy of tennis, but having a slump year at age 30. Sergei is the up-and-coming new Russian player. A whole match ensues over 90 minutes. The players mime the points and communicate their thoughts. In between, and there is a lot of in between, there are flashbacks and asides involving both of their love interests. Tim is married to ex-tennis pro Mallory. Sergei's girlfriend, who eschews french fries for her figure, is Galinda. Both ladies spend time in the players' boxes during the match. As fair disclosure, I am a tennis fan who attended the Australian Open last January, so I probably have a natural affinity for this material. Frankly, as described above, it is hard to imagine an exciting game of make-believe tennis, and probably that is exactly what happens. Footfault. Line drive to one player's head. Aces and double faults. Passing shots and emotions. The zeal to devote one's existence to a sport. The support structure that is needed. The hunger to get to the top ten. The panic of aging and falling from the pinnacle. The need to go to the diner for a grilled cheese and bacon sandwich while in New York City. It's all there. An entertaining play that zips along with plenty to say. The last match is performed by a company of four actors who seem to naturally inhabit their characters. At the performance I saw, Tim was played by understudy J.D. Taylor. He was excellent. His nemesis, Sergei, embodied by Alex Mikowitz, is the flashier role. He's the new bad boy with plenty of quips to go along with the thick accent. He was also excellent and very, very funny. The play was written by Anna Ziegler, best known for the West End's Photograph 51, starring Nicole Kidman. The last match is a nice example of a really good evening at the theater. From the month of December, during Santa Claus time, we have the production Who's Holiday. Titus McCall submitted his review for Who's Holiday on the New York Theater Guide website. He concluded, Why was this written? Why was that done? It doesn't seem fitting because this show's no fun. Boo-hoo. I laughed out loud. Then the New York Times weighed in with a more positive view. Quote, the show belongs to the evergreen subgenre of holiday offerings that proffer to dirty up Christmas while ultimately reveling in its spirit. Unquote. Wow. Despite being impressed by the word evergreen as an adjective for subgenre, I had to know which review was right. I attended Whose Holiday to hear them play their pantukas. I hoped it would make me laugh something bazookas. Get it? Bazooka Joe? If you thought that joke was lame, so is this show. Cindy Lou Who, impregnated, now a trailer trash hoe. Despite the extraordinary presence of Leslie Margarita as the older, cocktail-swilling, cigarette-smoking, drug-taking Cindy, you get the picture. On the plus side, the set was nearly perfect. That's not enough to recommend this underbaked comedy with its ill-advised, dreadfully dull poignancy at the end. 
Boo-hoo indeed. As far from evergreen as the metal trees in a Charlie Brown Christmas. Next up, the Fountainhead. As part of the 2017 Next Wave Festival, the Fountainhead arrives via Tunnel Grof Amsterdam at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. The company's director, Ivo van Hove, was recently represented by two excellent Broadway revivals, A View from the Bridge and The Crucible. So it's really no surprise that the production here is super conceptualized, visually arresting, and well acted. But the material is Anne Rand. Having never read her work, I was not completely prepared for the bloated hyperbole here rendered in Dutch with English supertitles. The Fountainhead's protagonist is Howard Bork, an individualistic young architect who designs modernist buildings. He is unwilling to compromise on his art. The architectural establishment is unwilling to accept innovation. Mr. Rourke is therefore presented as the ideal man and embodies Ms. Rand's view that individualism is superior to collectivism. The result is a four-hour diatribe of mind-numbingly self-righteous speeches and repetitive musings with dollops of nudity, sex, and drinking. At the core of this watchable bore is an ultimately an overwrought soap opera. The woman who calculatingly sleeps around, the newspaper people who make or break careers, the not-so-talented but more successful rival, and our hero, as self-important as his brilliant buildings. Thrown into this theatrical blender is a mix of endless philosophical musings about everything from capitalism, rape, socialism, conformity, and individualism. From my seat, as an individual, I was happy when this relentlessly preachy story ended, unresolved and overlong. Perhaps collectivism and editing are not entirely bad things. Now, the Second Stage Theater's production of Torch Song. In 1982, Harvey Firestein's Torch Song trilogy opened on Broadway. After off and off-off Broadway runs, three plays were combined into a trilogy. International Stud, which was the name of a real bar at that time, Fugue in a Nursery, and Widows and Children First. All center around Arnold, a Jewish homosexual drag queen living in New York during various phases of his life. For his work, Mr. Feierstein won Tony Awards for both Best Play and Best Actor. His career took off from there to include writing the books for La Caja Foal and Kinky Boots and Newsies, authoring the play Casa Valentina, and starring in Hairspray. From the original New York Times review, I cannot and do not want to imagine anyone else playing Arnold. Mr. Feierstein's self-incarnation is an act of compelling virtuosity. Clearly, after seeing this revival of Torch Song, it is easy to imagine the author's voice and physicality throughout this play. Happily, Michael Urey is up for the challenge. Although the off-used physical description of Big does not fit, he effectively conveys this man's self-deprecating humor while searching for love and family. The original four-hour play was shortened for this production, but the connective tissue of the plot seemed intact. Parts of this play are very funny. Other parts are emotionally draining, even scarring. In the third segment, Mercedes Rule plays his monstrous mother, and the scene between the two of them is raw. Also notable in this production is Ward Horton as Ed, the confused bisexual, and Jack DeFalco as young David. The creative team has mounted a fine, fluid version of this play. As a result, 
Torch Song seems to stand the test of time for a piece very firmly rooted in its post-Stonewall era. This past month, we have seen news reports about the President of the United States joking that the Vice President wants to hang all gay people. If we were all lucky enough to meet Arnold 35 years later, I expect his Torch Song would sadly still be sung. Now let's take a trip to Carvershire, Massachusetts, and attend the King Richard's Fair. Normally, I would expect that theater reviews for my seat does not cover Renaissance fairs, as there are no seats. There are wooden benches, though, so we shall make an exception. Plus, on the King's stage, there was a two-act musical comedy entitled Marry Me a Little, Bury Me a Lot. Essentially, this show consisted of reworded tunes not only from Broadway musicals, but also from the likes of R.E.M. and Whitney Houston. Best number was a riff on At the Ballet from a chorus line. A princess was falling for the prince's valet. You can be so happy with the valet, with the valet, followed by musical flourish. Well, it's not necessarily know the references to enjoy this silly show, but it significantly adds to the laughs. I attended this raucous event over the weekend because my son was performing as part of the musical entertainment. He was on trumpets, drums, guitar. The whole thing was genius, as one would expect. I saw Snorkel, the trained pig, do a hoof bump. Jacques Zirapier, a Frenchman with a whip and a quip, was fun. There were jousts and pub sings. The best show was Washing Well Wenches, whose act is described as wet, dirty women, good, clean fun. It was inspired audience participation at its most hilarious. Naturally, there were manual-powered rides and games like the axe throw and knife throw. The hard-working cast seemed to be having a ball. Loved the costumes. And like any good Renaissance fair, many of the guests and their kids came dressed in their finest medieval wear. Or medieval-ish. Each weekend there was a special event. A week before I attended, there was a competition called Cleavage Contest, where fair ladies of the realm were invited to be daring without bearing. Although we missed that one, there didn't appear to be any shortage of Cleveland the weekend I attended. Huzzah! Still running off-Broadway from 2018 is the play Pucks, or Seven Increasingly Eventful Years at a Certain School of Magic and Magic. Are you eagerly anticipating this season's soon-to-be-impossible ticket, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Parts 1 and 2? Have you read all the books and seen all the movies? Is Moaning Myrtle your favorite ghost of all time? Does the idea of sticking a Land O'Lakes label on a brown beer bottle make you laugh? If you answered yes to some of these questions, perhaps Puffs is the diversion you need. I have read all the books and love the series. My favorite was The Prisoner of Azkaban. I've seen some of the movies. The Pensieve, a magical memory bowl, was a remarkable plot device. So I have enough knowledge to comment on Puffs or seven increasingly eventful years at a certain school of magic and magic. This play is a take on the series from the point of view of the House of Hufflepuff, the most underrated of the four houses in Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. If you care not, stop reading now. This show is not for you. If you are fully aware that the Puffs were perennial losers in competitions, and you'd like to see them try again to be great wizards, then this madcap send-up of the series is a silly, funny, entertaining comedy. The audience roared when a joke was made about the book Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Only after looking it up afterward did I learn that it was written by a puff. 
Yes, it will help to be a total Potter nerd to get every joke. Those who did, and there were many, seemed to be besides themselves with joy. For the rest of us, this was 90 minutes of well-directed fun with a high-energy cast and some very impressive staging. One more thing to consider before you go. The Puffs are a little over Harry Potter, his hero attitude, and those two friends of his. They did not heed the he who will not be ridiculed motto. And the last review I want to share with you today is a play that is still running on Broadway in 2018. It's called The Play That Goes Wrong. Currently, there's a deluge of sharp political humor for good reason. John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, most recently Tina Fey's Sheet Cake Rant, and on and on. That's because the targets are big, obvious, and, well, it's oh so easy to stick the landing. Still, sometimes I want to laugh out loud without being reminded of the shit show that is our government. When that time arrives, and it is now, head to the Lyceum Theater for the play that goes wrong. It is hilarious from start to finish. A 2015 Olivier Award winner for Best New Comedy, this play was created by Mischief Theater and is still running in the West End. Like another classic British farce, Noises Off, the hijinks are structured as a play within a play, but with character development replaced by non-stop tomfoolery. This time it's The Murder at Haversham Manor, a slightly run-down English manor house with a dead body at the top of Act One. Think Agatha Christie meets Monty Python in a bad play performed very badly. If it can go wrong, it does. The audience with whom I saw this play laughed hard and very, very often. Everyone in the cast is funny, with Dave Heron's performance as Cecil Haversham my frontrunner for Best in Show. Nigel Hook deservedly won the Tony Award for Best Scenic Design of a Play. The set not only gives the actors the platform to be hilarious, it sometimes even upstages them as if it were a character unto itself. If you are not a fan of farce, slapstick humor, or broad physical comedy, perhaps stay away. If you are, get your tickets and have a great fun night at the theater. Even the playbill goes wrong. Loved it. So that's a wrap for my recap of the 2017 Broadway year. In the next episode, we'll cover those theatrical experiences that I attended in January of 2018. From big musicals like Miss Saigon, to Mark Rylance's return to Broadway in Farinelli and the King, and the next production from my company of the year last year, the Mint Theatre Company, and their production of Hindle Wakes. You can always see the reviews in their entirety on www.theaterreviewsformyseat. Any comments or suggestions are welcome at theaterreviewsformyseat at comcast.net.